the loneliness among human beings is so tragic. And it's a direct expression of having believed this separation from all things. And so full ecology has become a way to question that. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as a way of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and with this episode, we begin our fourth season Our very first episode of How It Looks From Here was in September of 2020, when the pandemic was just getting going. At the time, we were being asked to work from home to keep our distance from each other. It occurred to us at Full Ecology that a huge cost of this distance was that we wouldn't be hearing how other people were making sense of COVID in their lives. How were people coping? How could we learn from each other with so little face-to-face contact? How did the world look to people we weren't seeing on the street, at work, in the grocery? Our first season was dedicated to hearing from people across the country and in many different roles about how they were navigating life in the time of COVID. By September of 2021, we began extending our focus, keeping an eye on the pandemic, and looking to see what more we could learn from each other about living well in the time of climate change. Over the stretch of these years, I've had the opportunity to speak with poets and dancers, with wildfire experts, ranchers, and reproductive health advocates from all walks of life. The archives are live, and they are worth diving into to learn more from this range of perspectives. And then today, to launch our fourth season, I'm speaking with Gary Ferguson, a highly acclaimed nature writer, co-creator of Full Ecology, and my life partner. Only recently have we realized that in January of 2024, we will have been developing and learning from Full Ecology for 10 years. It only seemed right to begin this season of How It Looks From Here with a conversation on what Full Ecology has taught us and what it continues to teach. Gary is the author of 27 books in which he renders science and story. In our conversation, we revisit the origins of full ecology and make our way to speaking about the impact full ecology has had on Gary's work as a writer and mine supporting organizations committed to healthy work culture. Take a listen. Well, hi, Gary. Hi, Mary. It's good to have you here on How It Looks From Here. I'm so happy to be here. What a what a wonderful journey you've had with so many interesting guests. I'm honored to uh, be on the show with you. Well, we started together for season three, and we're starting together for season four. Um, and we're realizing this is actually the coming up on the 10th anniversary of... You and me coming up with full ecology full in the ecology. first place. Can it's, you believe that? No, I really can't believe it's been 10 years. But if you say so, okay. What do you remember? 
Yeah, what I recall is us uh, walking together not long after we'd met, and I had been working with the uh, Wolf Project uh, with biologist Doug Smith and others and was very excited about what was being learned there as well as with other mammal species from orcas to elephants to chimpanzees uh, about how these particular species of, of mammals thrive, what kinds of conditions allow them to do well in the face of, of big challenges. And as I recounted some of the more recent findings, your eyes lit up and you started talking about how many of those same conditions that allow for the thriving of those species were very much uh, in line with the kinds of conditions that were allowing people to thrive. And so um, now it sounds kind of obvious to me, but at that time it was like, wow, um, there are ecologies that we tend to think of going on in the natural world, but there are also ecologies within us and between us. And as you said at that time and still say, uh, you know, if we don't take care of those ecologies between us and within us, then it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for us to uh, be good stewards uh, for those other ecologies because we're all connected. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, this blending of social science and conservation science is what we happened upon, and we decided on the name, or we just happened also upon the name Full Ecology uh, about 10 years ago. And then we've been thinking and, and writing and speaking and, um, yeah, doing great deep dives with once a month with uh, friends of Full Ecology. And, um, yeah, just doing kind of the thing and also then our retreats. So that's, it's been, it's been great to do all of this. I guess going back though to like what, uh, what set this in motion in the first place, I think it is right what you're saying that, that you and I started seeing these overlaps and they were, they were kind of beautifully obvious, like they had been obvious to the Iroquois leadership that the wolves, if you watch the wolves, you can see how, beings ought to get along. And so how can we support that kind of interaction in our communities? So this is not something that's necessarily new. Right. Um, but then the, the thing that, that was really um, helpful was to begin to strip down this, what, what we came to call being right-sized, to strip down the notion of what it means to be human and to understand that we are Every day of every moment of our lives, we are the natural world in the natural world. We are that. So not only are we affected uh, in ways that are social, and certainly we need to attend to our internal ecologies and the ecologies between us relationally, we're also in constant relationship with things we see and can't see. I mean, that's, that's some of the things that you brought online about microbes and how much of our body is composed of things that we weren't born with. Right. And, and I know shortly after we came up with the, uh, the idea, the name Full Ecology, we also came up with the, the notion, although this too perhaps has shown up elsewhere in the world, but this is about reclaiming your human nature or our human nature. And so I think that's what you're, you're, you're talking about. We as humans are, are, um, given opportunities to thrive in much the same way on the same principles and using the same qualities that other other species are. And you mentioned the microbes. Yeah, there are actually more microbial cells in your body right now than there are human cells. And 
many of them did not come into this world with you. They came to live with you after you were here. They're the uh, organisms that break down nutrients from the food you eat and turn them into the energetics you need for your brain and your muscles. Uh, there are uh, microbes living on your skin that keep pathogens out of your body and keep you safe and healthy. Um, there are these exchanges we've talked about several times before, such as um, when we walk under a tree, the tree's not just giving us oxygen, which is essential, but giving us a phytoncide, a chemical compound that actually strengthens our immune system as well as our vital organs. So uh, I think you asked this question years ago, um, do you really end where your skin ends? Uh, and, and the answer is a resounding no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, the, among the other things that we kind of ran across that, as you were saying earlier, sort of feel obvious now, but but they keep being quite profound. And that is, there has never been any such thing as a rugged individual ever yes. on this planet, yes. ever. And so that's a complete contrivance of human experience. That that notion of of individual independence, entire independence, or what we called the separation myth, is is just something that must, the bubble has to be burst, because it's just impossible for anybody, no matter how fabulous, to function as an individual alone by themselves. Yeah, that just doesn't happen. I think that's uh, gained a lot of steam, that delusion in, in modern times under under the patriarchy, and that's the, it is an expression of, I think, uh, an over-eager uh, patriarchy to think that, you know, I can be a, a strong individual and, and swashbuckle my way through the world and I don't really depend on anybody else for my success. And as you say, there's, there, there's simply no truth at all of that. And, and three or 4,000 years ago, I think it would have seemed uh, entirely preposterous because there were... Um, mythologies and stories that celebrated regularly how connected we are not only to each other but to the world around us. Um, this was a, you know, as we've talked about before, this was a huge part of uh, the feminine archetype. Uh, you, you've got uh, Lao Tzu saying, nature feeds and clothes all beings without ever needing to be master over them. So there was this notion, there were these stories that drew us back over and over again to the truth of our connectedness and our relationality. And to be honest, now a lot of uh, scientists are, are understanding the level of connection that, that really allows us to work. And some of the evolutionary biologists are saying that it's not survival of the fittest, although that doesn't mean what some people think it does. It meant more, are you fit for the environment you're in? But it's not survival of the fittest so much as survival of the friendliest. So not that there isn't competition, not that there isn't territorialism in, in many species, but what allowed us all to evolve and, and, and show such brilliance after three and a half billion years of, of life is, is cooperation and its connectivity. And I think we're just now beginning to regain the wisdom of that after being gone from it for so long. Right. This seems so. And that's part of what, you know, we see this conversation of full ecology to be 
uh, a way for people to engage in that investigation, inquiry into that precisely. Because one of the things that you were saying earlier is, you know, this version or this myth or this story you know, and science is coming around. Well, science is really a quite sophisticated, and really many of them are, storytelling system. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we look at the world around us, we as humans, because we've got these frontal lobes, and we try to make sense of it, and we try to make story that makes sense. And so what has happened is that the storyline has gotten way off. It's gotten way off from being informed by our absolute interdependence with the natural world, within the natural world, as the natural world. And this is kind of a a thing that has gotten almost into our DNA in terms of the way that we make sense of of the world and ourselves. So, to to cut to that, at least for the last mm, 400 years, maybe a thousand years, you know, a long time, we have continued increasingly to structure our interactions with one another within what we call society or even within what we call homes and, and primary relationships according to this weird belief that I am separate from you, that we are separate. And there, it sure appears that way because we're in these bodies encased in this skin. But say more about that and what you'd say about the history of that epistemology. Well, if you if you turn the calendar back, as you said, four hundred years ago, um, y- you land in sort of the beginnings of what would become modern science, and and of course, modern science has done wonderful things and given us all kinds of, of benefits and and opportunities to enjoy life and survive life that that we didn't necessarily have before. But one of the instruments of that science, which really sp- this kind of thinking, this philosophy, this grounding uh, of thought in science started with science's insistence that there has to be a way to isolate a particular item that you want to study and that you would try to derive certain truths from having isolated. Maybe you want to study an apple tree, so you know things become blurred if you take in the atmosphere and the microorganisms in the soil and the effect of drought, you you really kind of want to isolate that apple tree to find some essential qualities of it. And that's all well and good. I mean, it, we really learned a lot. But along the way, we started to think that that kind of storytelling system, as you called it, and it is, is, is the whole truth. And, and it's simply a wonderful way to parse out um, essential qualities or elements of what's out there in nature, but it was never really designed very well to look at nature holistically, to see what the connective patterns are. And now science is very much faced, and has been for the last 75 years, faced with how to write a story system that allows us to uh, imagine that level of connectivity that we never really paid much attention to before. Um, and, and I don't think anybody back then could have predicted the dire consequences that would, have, that would eventually come from that subject-object thinking. And you and I have talked about as well, when you really get used to that, that nature out there is something for me to study, no matter how I might have to abuse it to study it, um, you can also start to do subject-object uh, thinking with, with other people people who don't look like you, uh, with women. You know, they can become objectified. They can become 
sort of unreal and held in these these boxes by virtue of us objectifying them. And so that that whole system of thought, while useful, has really uh, the, the bad parts have, have come home to roost. And I think that's a lot of why we find ourselves in such uh, environmental danger right now. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. So would you would you agree that this separation myth that we've all been so deeply conditioned to function within, that that it it really is, and it's just a, such a short hop to the need to be either dominant or the victim to that there that there is this this notion within separation that somebody's going to be better and somebody's going to be not as good. You were kind of alluding to that earlier, but this, I mean, and so that then renders the natural world not just as not as good but as mine to do with as i wish thus the language of natural resources i think that's absolutely right and and nature was described by some pundits in the age of descartes say as as we need to take nature it was said and put her on the rack and torture her secrets from her and so uh, this is just uh. yeah to have that kind of approach to the world around you uh, and again, too often, sadly, to other people, other groups, uh, um, yeah, it's a very, very dangerous and ultimately uh, self-sabotaging uh, road Well, to certainly. Yeah. It's just not sustainable. And this is where we find ourselves, is really looking ourselves right. You said chickens coming home to roost. You know, looking ourselves right in the eyes and going, am I really separate from all others? One of the things that this this illusion that we've so, it's like we took the wrong pill or drank the Kool-Aid or something, that this illusion has done to us is made us horribly depressed and anxious and lonely the loneliness among human beings is so tragic, and it's a direct expression of having believed this separation from all things. And so full ecology has become a way to question that and to, to just take a look and check it out for yourself. You don't have to believe Gary. You don't have to believe Mary. Check it out for yourself or where, like you were saying earlier, this thing about do you really end where your skin ends? Just investigate that. There's nothing, no cost, nothing. Just give it a go. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that this sort of thinking, this limited, very limited thinking, again, um, subject, object, scientific method has had wonderful uses. But the, if that's all we've got, I think it even leaves us in the face of environmental challenges unqualified or badly prepared to, to tackle them because we tend to think, okay, well, we need to reduce carbon dioxide levels in the air. That's something that I can't do anything about. That needs to happen by government intervention or it needs to happen by corporate responsibility. It's, it's just natural for us to kind of think, well, the problems of the world are really being caused by 
those people and it can be solved by those people and I just, there's nothing I can do that's going to matter. And that's a kind of disconnection from the world, from a, from a, a very hurting, um, injured world. Um, you know, that, that brings me to the thought, too, that you and I have talked about a lot, and that's the need to grieve, you know, not just to grieve the things that are being lost in the, fa- lost in the face of climate change, but maybe to grieve that we have bought so wholesale into a separation myth. Because you, you mentioned how lonely people are and how sometimes, you know, that leads to hopelessness and, and, and health issues and premature death. That loneliness, I think, is underscored by um, this notion that um, we aren't connected to each other and we aren't really connected to the things that we want to save, the grizzly bears, the wolves, the orcas, you know, all of these, the tree, the forests that are disappearing from parts of uh, the world. Um, We feel bad about that, but feeling bad really is an invitation to grieve what's been lost. And in that grieving process, then I think we can walk out of it to the other side where we live as if we truly are in kinship with, with everything. And that that's uh, that's the payoff. That's the payoff is a a beautiful sense of of the kinship that really is how life works. That we are always in relationship. There's no way we can get away from it. We are always always in relationship. Well, you know, this um conversation up to now is sort of a a revisiting of the things that we've thought in full ecology and you and I are of course thinking about this stuff all the time. Um, yes. It's, so, so speak to that a little bit. You've got uh, a new writing project. Can you tell our listeners anything about that project and how full ecology has been affecting you these days in that work? Well, I'm just starting a book project for Island Press called The Twilight Forest, and it's based on the fact that in much of the southwest, let's say a thousand mile arc roughly from Santa Fe, Taos, all the way to the southern Sierras of Southern California, there's been one tree, one really big dose of verticality in that region that has been celebrated by movie makers and artists and writers and of, of, of all sorts, and that's the Ponderosa tree. And so they're now... Uh, modelers, scientific modelers are predicting, and they've become actually uh, painfully accurate with a lot of these predictions, that 95% of the Ponderosa forests are going to be gone by 2050 from those uh, lower elevations. So we're talking south rim of the Grand Canyon. It's going to be a a transformation of a landscape. I I think of it as the first post-climate change landscape in America. And of course, you don't just lose the aesthetic beauty of those trees. And by the way, I mentioned junipers before, I think, and pinions, which are the other two trees that are common there. And it's really mostly those three, they're being ravaged as well. And there are places where um, pinion and juniper forests have, have been eliminated already by 70 and 80%. So, but back to the Ponderosa, it's, it's not just that we lose that beautiful aesthetic that really sings uh, of the West. To, to, to most people around the world, when they see a, a ponderosa tree in a certain rockscape, um, it, it's, the, it, it's the American West. It's unmistakable. But we don't just lose that kind of connection. We also, of course, lose the, the amazing 
number of animals, insects, birds that are tied in, again, because ponderosa don't exist on their own any more than any of the rest of us do, um, we lose those, those life webs. And what will come in their place is um, more of a, a, a grassland Mediterranean climate, somewhat like southern Greece. Uh, again, th- there will be life there, there will be relationships there, but much will be lost uh, through the loss of the Ponderosa. And so I didn't want to just make it a doom and gloom story, although it's a sad story, it really is. I wanted to also make it an honoring of that tree. You know, it was that tree that provided the roof timbers 4,000 years ago for the first indigenous people to build multi-story buildings that were, in fact, the first cities in North America. That that tree was there from that point, and it's been with us uh, as as the most common lumber tree in the West for decades. So it served us and served us and served us. And with with it facing um, a, a demise in much of the country, I wanted to thank it for that, as well as just honor um, its beauty and its 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 role in human society. And that you know, that's back to what I was saying before. It's a grief journey in some ways. It's not only that, but it's a grief journey. And I think that we probably would benefit from not being quite so afraid of a grief journey being a downer because it helps you sort of incorporate the sadness of what's being lost and in the end when you do come out the other side you 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 do have another opportunity as i was also saying earlier to build kinship and relationship the the reason we grieve is because we care as i've heard you say uh many times in the past if we didn't love a a a, a person a parent a friend, um, when they died, it, it wouldn't hurt so much. And so we wouldn't want to live our life not caring about those people because that's the essence of what makes life enjoyable and worth getting out of bed in the morning. And I would argue the same thing is true for the natural world. We wouldn't want to not care enough about the things that are disappearing that when they disappear, it doesn't hurt. That's, a, that's kind of a deal with the devil as far as I'm concerned. And so, so this um, this love is another lesson of full ecology. It's another teaching of the natural world that even in grief, even in loss, which is a constant in the natural world, there's always the emergence of life, and there's always dying, always, 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 mm-hmm. and. And we, because of our uh, self-reflective capacity, know no loss through grief. And so that grief, as you're suggesting, is because we do love, and we love because we are connected, and we value that. And it's even deeper than that. Uh, you and I have even written in, in the Full Ecology book about um, nature's loving disinterest, Mm-hmm. That yes. nature itself with us, like the Ponderosa, is so endlessly benevolent and generous and giving. Doesn't even, it's not transactional at all. Doesn't even occur to a Ponderosa not to be a fabulous, generous Ponderosa. But the Ponderosa isn't sitting there, you know, clicking its fingers on the table, waiting for us to show up and be appreciative. Yeah. 
Right. It's completely right. disinterested in whether we ever say thank you or not. And so this is the curriculum that, that for me, um, getting close to 10 years down the road, that I keep learning from. The curriculum that is, there is this unspeakable beauty, this unspeakable mystery, and this unspeakable community that are always available and, and a part of who we are all the time. And that is the abundant generosity, the, the love of the natural world giving, given out to whoever is around. And, the, and it doesn't matter if you ever notice, but it does matter. And that's the way that it matters is that we come to know better who we are and how to be who we are. That's what it seems like I keep learning. Yes, that's really well said. And, and, and as you were saying, and I, I, I was struck by a notion that I hadn't really considered in terms of how I define the term full ecology. And, and another way to think about it is we're suggesting that by grieving, by taking responsibility for what we do in our lives, by you know trying to be a part of the solution from the people we put in office to what we do uh, as volunteers, all of that uh, is an invitation to really be more fully entrenched in the experience of life. The reality, the beauty, the sadness, but being more entrenched to me is a kind of full ecology. It's a fullness ecology that um, allows us to really sample this earth and our time on it in a way that we can't when we're knotted up, as you said earlier, with separation thinking. It's a, it's a different experience to life if you think you're entirely separate and autonomous and a rugged individual uh, versus considering that you're a part of a grand web um, that is absolutely intricately connected in ways that we're only just beginning to understand. So you use the term entrenched, and uh, for me, that's a word that uh, implies rigidity. And so uh, do you mean, so I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, do you mean uh, more deeply rooted to flourish from this truth? Is that, is that what you're suggesting? Yes, I think deeply rooted is a, is a better way to say it, or enmeshed, or... Um, fully participatory, um, but yes, uh, rooted, connected, more fully connected, yeah. and and more connected to the emotions in the case of climate change that very much should be coming up in the face of realizing that we as individuals and the decisions we've made as a culture over centuries have resulted in, in a very wounded planet right now. And um, that doesn't mean we have to stop making progress or stop loving and laughing and all the other things that are, are wonderful to do. But I, I do think it's time to reach for a, a level of maturity um, that will take in all those things and allow us the opportunity again for this sort of kinship, because through that kinship, then we act uh, much as we would for the sake of our literal kin uh, on, on their behalf. Right, and so we, when when we are, we, then we are productive, or we are 
well, I forget exactly the word you used, but we, you know, you said we don't have to stop being active. We don't have to stop producing. And that's true, but our production will be in the interest of all beings that are touched by that productivity. And there is nothing but gain for everyone in that kind of process. It's been fascinating for me to watch in my own work out in the world um, with organizations and how organizations function um, to see that, that what people are longing to have nurtured is not just the capacity to communicate clearly with each other, that certainly, but a finer point is to have really difficult conversations, to have conversations that are, are, can, can acknowledge and together move through whatever it is that isn't working. And so those now we're back to the, the fullness of ecology that includes if we as human beings wish to be of, of uh, positive impact in our climate, in our, our ecologies, in the environment, then we must deal with, we're not going to be able to do that if we're at odds with each other in our social ecologies or in our internal ecologies. So how do we communicate and how does, you know, the mycorrhizae that we've learned about that speak between trees, that carry messages between trees, they have a lot to teach us about communication. And, and it's just people are longing to know how to talk about difficult things. And a difficult thing, because we have shunned it for so long, is grief. A difficult thing is also interdependence, complete dependence on each other. We don't necessarily want to say that. We don't want to necessarily talk about what that looks like, but it can be done how we each keep our dignity and recognize that we must attend to our interdependence all the time. So, so I'm finding that full ecology really informs my work supporting organizations in communicating more clearly and most specifically in dealing with difficult or some people have called them brave or courageous conversations within workplaces and within families, within governmental entities, all of those places where humans are in the position of working with each other to make life better for everyone. You know, uh, many of the listeners will have heard of the indigenous notion, which is still very popular in many cultures today around the world, indigenous cultures, and that's the idea of the seventh generation. To, to consider with the actions we're deciding to take, what might be the consequence for seven generations in the future? Now, perhaps you could argue that at one point, well, we didn't know that, you know, industrialization was going to spew carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and warm the planet because we didn't have that scientific understanding. But we've, we've got a lot of knowledge right now. We, we have got more than we need to understand what ramifications are likely to happen based on the decisions we make. So we can come together, as you say, and try our best to do that and create a better world for the people who are going to come after us. Or we can continue that separation thinking about, well, I got mine, you know, you, you get yours and the people of tomorrow and the day after that and the year after that are, are just going to have to fend for themselves. And that's a, that's a kind of a brutality 
Well, it's not viable. It's not friendly. It's not the species won't continue if that's what we continue to do. And so, you know, we, you and I, I guess, are... are um, jazzed and proponents of the precepts of full ecology because we see it as a way for all of us to just enter into consideration of what our relationship is, as you said earlier, with the natural world, breaking down the barriers between the human psyche and the natural world, barriers that were always illusory. I'm not illusory, they were quite actually there, but based on illusion. And so, you know, I really hope that listeners will also just really know you don't have to believe a thing that you hear that we're saying, but do investigate it for yourself. Do see what you think is happening. So out of that, we're coming to a close here. What would you leave listeners with today that would be any kind of suggestion for um, how they might move through the next months um, in, in ways that that are, are consistent with full ecology and that lead to uh, connections with beauty, community, and mystery. Well, these changes you suggest, these, these sea changes in how we see the world and how we go through the world, those have, uh, in the most basic sense, I think, been carried across human history in the arms of story. What, what stories are we telling? So I might first just start with that stopping, which we suggest is the first step in full ecology, just stop. And then the second step we suggest is asking before you get into action and asking yourself, not just do I end at the end of my skin, but what stories am I telling about um, a certain group of people? Or what stories am I telling about my relationship to the environment? Or, you know, in those kinds of uh, questions to the extent they will allow us to begin once again after thousands of years uh, for a lot of us in absentia, begin to weave a sense of relationship, a sense of kinship, a sense of belonging. And the, and the richness of that kinship and belonging, I think, is what will help energize the actions that you then decide you want to take to do your small part to to make this world a better place and to and to ease some of the dangers of climate change and if enough people are doing that then the paradigm shifts and the world changes for the better and it probably is even as we speak that's what seems to be happening but as i have said earlier please do not believe us check it out for yourself do so yes yes well yeah gary thanks for joining me on this first episode of season 4 of how it looks from here it's been a pleasure, and we'll have to do it again one of these days. Maybe to begin season five. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Stay tuned, I say. All right. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.fullecology.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Write us at connect at fullecology.com. Send a note, and we'll sign you up for our monthly newsletter. Also, for a slightly different slant on what we talk about in this episode, you can check out our Full Ecology September video update. We'll leave a link to that YouTube in our show notes. During our conversation, we referred often to ideas from our book, Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World. It's available in bookstores everywhere, 
We'd love it if you'd pick up a copy and let us know how your relationship with the natural world is working in your life. We're all in this together, after all. And now, before we go, a quick pitch for this podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning How It Looks From Another Viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational initiative of Full Ecology. Produced by me, Mary Claire. Edited by Gary Ferguson. Music by Gary Ferguson and other artists noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and, as I mentioned earlier, at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch. Mm-hmm.